Oh, welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be doing some of this review of this unbelievable debate. And I think this guy's actually a pretty good host. I've seen a couple other of his debates previously, and uh, uh, he's a good moderator. Let's put it that way. So I'm going to kind of skip forward. This is uh, William Lane Craig and uh, our buddy James White. They're debating. And I, I saw maybe probably five minutes of this. I jumped in just enough time to drop a couple insults and then leave. And so I haven't heard most of this debate. So we'll hopefully we could get to their opening arguments. I don't know if they have opening arguments. We'll just kind of skip around until we kind of see what they're saying. Maybe we'll get to their opening arguments somewhere. It's forced me to think through my theology to a, a deeper level in certain areas uh, than, than before. And uh, yes, that has resulted in addressing issues that probably back in the 1990s wouldn't have seen. I think this is the part where he uh, demoralizes the entire audience by explaining that he was a grief counselor in the hospital. Imagine that. You're in the hospital. I've been in the hospital. And uh, you don't want James White as your grief counselor. That's, that's a really bad, bad turn of events. It's like uh, you're in misery and then it just keeps getting worse. Uh, you Most of the books that I read did not come from where I'm coming from as to God's relationship to evil, whether it's natural evil in the sense of a, of a car accident, a flood, a lightning strike, whatever else it might be, or moral evil, uh, shootings and drug overdoses. We're going to move forward a little bit like more. That. Well, Justin, you may remember that uh, when, uh, when Bill and Paul Helm had a discussion on your program in 2014, uh, you got to the last five minutes and the most important stuff was said in the last five minutes. And even you, you said, that's a really helpful discussion. But it was in the last five minutes. You couldn't expand <laughs> it beyond there. So hopefully we'll get back to that level before the last five minutes of the program, because it's really where I think the rubber meets the road. Because from the Reformed perspective, uh, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith very clearly says that, that God foreordains decrees whatsoever comes to pass in time. And then immediately discusses uh, the the issue of the will of man and and all, everything that flows from that. But first and foremost is the decree of God that God not only is the creator of all things, but because He is the creator of all things, then He is the one who has determined the very fabric of time, and that's why events in time have meaning. That's why something like the incarnation can have meaning, and evil has meaning because Christ has to come. So I'm very much under the impression from post-debate reviews of this that James White accuses William Lane Craig of using philosophy and not using the Bible. Whereas what are we seeing right here in uh, his philosophy? His philosophy, if God created the world, then these Calvinist properties must be true. That's all, all just baseless philosophy. He's just He's confusing his claims with reality. He doesn't establish that. That's not backed up by any evidence. It's just a claim to deal with this issue. And so it 
has meaning. And that means the decree of God is not something that results in mankind being mere puppets. Instead, that decree is what makes events in time. Uh, so what really funny thing to do with Calvinists is they say, God is not the author of sin. Well, well, you know, I, I'm familiar with books, you know, uh, a book has an author, the, the author writes the plot of the book and the details of the book. Are, are you telling me that God's not the author of all creation? It, it, it's, is God not the author? It, is that is that what author means? Like, I know what an author is. Is God the author of history? Like a playwright writes a book, like he authors a book, and they'll be struck dumb. They'll, they'll just say, oh, um, God's not the author of sin. That just means he's not responsible for the sin. So they have to dis disregard how language works, what, what an author is. They, they, they're not going to be able to define author because it's a, it's a meaningless phrase. It doesn't have meaning except to to try to push responsibility away from God. God's not the author of sin. Author has no meaning. So try that with them. Just say, hey, um, you know, an author writes a book and the book has a plot and a story. Did God author history? Did God write history? Did, did he de de determine, decree history? How is God not the author of history in, in your view? Meaningful. But the real question is, where is the source of this decree? And the emphasis... Idol Killer says, obviously, James is biblical. Just look at the sheer size of the cross he's wearing. So I don't actually believe that the size of the cross was determined by James White. It just happened to be whatever size cross it was from uh, the church lady that he mugged for that outfit. That's how that's how that size was, in fact, determined. Of the scriptures is there's a particular a couple particular terms that are used, but in Ephesians chapter one, we're told that this is according to the eudakia of his will, the good, kind intention, that which is pleasing to him. And it's interesting that that's about salvation. But then later on in, uh, in that same chapter, when Paul talks about working all things according to the counsel of his will, that's the decision of his will that has worked all things out. So I think I did actually respond to this comment. I don't know if anyone linked up that comment to what he said here, but uh, God works all things after the counsel of his will. And so could that mean Calvinism? God is controlling everything. Yes. If you read it with the Calvinist lens, it could in fact mean the Calvinist meaning for that verse, but it also could mean something like um, a, a husband spends or buys all things after conversing with his wife about what he's going to purchase. That doesn't mean he's going to go buy all things. That just means he's uh, he takes a lot of soy if he's consulting with his wife every time before he buys something. Or he's just a good husband. That works too if you're that guy. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean God does all things. It, it could be in context the meaning that God thinks about the things that he's going to do before he does them. It's not meaningless or purposeless. It's there, there's thought given to God's actions. That's that's what it could mean. But the Calvinists, uh, out of hand, they reject alternative readings because their system doesn't work if people could read their proof texts with legitimate, rational, alternative meanings. It ceases to be a proof text. And they, re they really need these to be proof texts. They really need us to say there's only one conceivable reading of this verse, and it's the Calvinists. And the Calvinists, to establish that reading... All they have to do is state their own reading. I think uh, Warren Warren got a little bit of that maybe in his debate. I, I didn't watch his debate, 
uh, he, he wasn't going to trick me into that, but I, I've seen post-debate reviews um, where Tyler Vela will just state something and just think that just stating something means that something's true. So you, you've got to have evidence for your beliefs. Your beliefs can't, uh, a claim is not, is not evidence. A claim is not an argument. We can make claims all day long. And uh, James White, he, he likes to do the claims. And the funny thing is that in his debates, it's a common Calvinist thing as well, where, where um, the things that you have discussed in one debate don't mentally transfer to the next. So when John Sanders talked to James White about various meanings of Psalms 139, 16, James White didn't internalize that response and then next time he's dealing with John Sanders or any other open theist, deal with those varied responses. He just he stuck to his talking points as if as if he's never heard a response and uh, wasn't calculating that response that we all know. We, we got evidence that he's exposed to these responses. It's not a system of responding to actual arguments. It, it's it's a system that doesn't want to interact with outside thought. And so the Reformed perspective on the existence of evil has to take into consideration the fact that God is glorifying himself in all that he has created. So he is demonstrating the full range of his attributes. So yes, there's the negative in dealing with judgment, in dealing with evil, his power, his justice, his holiness, and the positive, his grace, his love, and his mercy— these things are all being demonstrated in his decree, in the creation that he is that he has made. And so where we're going to eventually have to discuss our differences, uh, Bill has often talked about uh, the, the meticulous providence of God and his sovereignty. So that's not a, that's not a difference between us. It's the ground that gives... And William Lane Craig is getting really old. And so when I met him, and this is like a couple of years ago at uh, Society of Biblical Literature, like he, he's like all arthritis-y and old. It's like, oh man, this is way different than your videos. You're getting up there. I'm, I'm surprised he's still alive and functioning. It's it's not like a bad or, or good thing either or. It's just, I'm just surprised. And, he, and he's still, he still seems to be cognizant of the world around, so... Good job, William Lane Craig, for still being alive. Gives rise to what that sovereignty actually does that is the issue between the Calvinist and the Molinist. And that has to do with God's knowledge when he has knowledge and issues related to that. I'll let Bill define those things. But that's why I was saying at the beginning, that's the key issue. That's what was gotten to in the last five minutes of a program seven years ago, almost seven years ago, <laughs> uh, actually almost eight years ago. Now that I think about it, yeah. doing math right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll be able to get to that and then be able to wow. elucidate upon that a little bit more. Uh, so one thing, um, there's that uh, atheist, Pine Ridge, Pine Creek Ridge, Pine something. Yeah, uh, and he was reviewing a James White video and James White was not sitting behind his desk. And the man looked positively pregnant. It's like, oh no, that's okay. I guess sitting sitting is a good stage. Um, that's that's a good way to hide hide your little tummy. Because remember, James White used to be like a really fat guy, and then he got into bicycling, and then he turned into like Skeletor, and now he's his weight's carrying different than it used to. It's 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 an interesting transformation. Uh, once we get there. Well, well, James has a good memory there, Bill. It was it was eight years ago, actually, that you met uh, Paul Helm in our in our London studio on that occasion. 
how, I think you were over for the C.S. Lewis Symposium. And, yes, uh, and probably. We, we, Boy, how time flies. I know, goodness. Um, but but yes, that and and I will uh, post that now that you've mentioned it, James, as as, a, as an, a, another follow up uh, for people to go and listen to because yeah. that, that was an excellent discussion too. But um, yeah, well, let let's see, let's get to the rubber and the road as well in yeah, today's conversation. But let's for those who who aren't familiar, perhaps you could sketch out the Molinist perspective, Bill. Um, obviously, uh, why you uh, you know and explain just how how it differs from Calvinism and and ultimately why you know you think it is a more appropriate response uh, or a way of understanding the the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Yeah, we'll listen to it. All right. Well, I think, Justin, since it is the Advent season, it would be very appropriate for me to appeal to Charles Dickens' wonderful story, A Christmas Carol, as Mm. an illustration of the Molinist view. You'll remember in this story, the climax comes when Scrooge is confronted by the spirit of Christmas yet to come, who shows him terrifying visions of Tiny Tim's tragic death and Scrooge's own unlamented death. And Scrooge, uh, shaken by these visions, says to the spirit, tell me one thing only, are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? And the spirit does not answer Scrooge. With good reason. Scrooge had failed to exhaust the alternatives. For between what could be and what will be... You know what's really fantastic is uh, Warren McGrew's takedown of uh, David and Kayla, the city of Kayla, where where they're going to turn David over to Saul. And, and his discussion with uh, Susan Morales, he, he talks about the mentality of what's going on there, how God said something's going to happen and that that thing didn't happen because what God was saying was going to happen is just, it's based on his current evaluation of the circumstances. And then David, he hears it. He's like, wait, wait a minute. This city's going to turn me over to Saul? He says, uh-oh, I don't want to be here for that. So let's get out of here. And then he takes off the other direction. It's it's like, Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. He's like, that doesn't sound very good. And he's like, cheese it. And he starts running the other way. Um, so David subverts what God says, what will happen. And this is not a category that Calvinism can deal with. Uh, time delineated future statements, uh, claims that God makes about the statement or about the future that don't materialize. They, they can't deal with this category of information. In, in their world, everything's set, everything's predestined, God controls all things. But in Molinism, it attempts to deal with that by assigning these categories of contingency to various events. I think that's where William Lane Craig is going here with the story of Tiny Tim. I would have, if I was him, opened up with the biblical example, and uh, maybe, maybe that would... Because if you're ever going to illustrate something, illustrating with the Bible is a better tactic in general than introducing a concept with a fictional story because it makes people not only have to argue against you, but then they're arguing against the Bible at the same time. You're, 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 you're multitasking. You're killing two birds with one stone. ...is what would be under certain circumstances. What the Spirit was showing Scrooge was what would happen if... Scrooge were not to repent and change. He was giving Scrooge a sort of hypothetical knowledge of subjunctive 
conditional uh, propositions. And the Molinist view is that God has this sort of knowledge logically prior to his divine creative decree of a world. And so while everything that happens is governed by God's decree, God's decree takes into account how people would freely choose under various circumstances in which, in which they might be placed. Yeah, so you know, notice the fatalism in that. Molinism doesn't escape the demands of fatalism. So God knows what we are going to choose in all circumstances that could be inputted into us. And so it, it's not actually a choice that we are making inside ourselves. It's, it's not a choice that's contingent on us. We might be a mechanism for making the choice, just like a computer might be a mechanism for processing data that we put into the computer, but the output's going to be based on a known algorithm, and we can predict accurately anything that a computer spits out if we know the internal functioning of that computer. And so Molinism works like that, in which we're biological machines, and God's knowledge is grounded in us acting fatalistically based on nothing inside ourselves. And so um, Alan Rhoda just wrote a very good paper on the grounding problem within Molinism, because if the choice is actually contingent on us, then there's no grounds for God's knowledge of it before we actually make those choices. They, they have a very distinctive grounding problem. How does God know what we will choose if it's contingent on us? And he knows before we make that choice. So it's not actually, it can't be. They, they'll claim it is, they'll claim it is, and uh, it, it just can't be because the truth value is set before that person ever makes that decision. The, the grounding of that truth is not in the person itself, but outside. And so Alan wrote a new paper on the subject. He, he talks about this grounding issue. And I've talked about it before as well. And I use William Lane Craig because he's who I see as the main advocate of Molinism. And so I pull up his book, Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview, and I talk about what he means by, by uh, events which are contingent or events which are necessary. And I talk about how he begs the question in his examples of what a contingent event is versus what something necessary is. He kind of just begs the question, oh, we all know that we could wear different color shirts tomorrow. Do we though? Do we? Because if fatalism is true, it's just an illusion and we don't have a choice actually not to think that it, it's contingent, but it, it's really not contingent. If fatalism is true, we, we, can't, we can't actually choose to wear a different color shirt tomorrow. That's, that's not a possibility. So um, he's not going to be able to avoid the grounding issue. And I suspect James White's going to call him on that because I saw something, something else somewhere where he is talking about this. Now, how does that impact the problem uh, of evil? Well, it seems to me that with respect to the problem of natural evil, that is to say non-moral evil, the difference between the Calvinist and the Molinist is not great. We would both say that these uh, afflictions are within the prerogative of God to impose upon us and fall within his sovereignty. And uh... Uh, Jack says that a mentally disabled seven-year-old could refute Molinism. I, th I think Molinism has been successful because it obfuscates language to such an extent. There, there's actually a podcast I was listening to about a well-known, renowned psychologist who just fabricated all his credentials. 
and how he survived in the world of psychology is no one would call him on his lectures on absolute nonsense. So he'd give a lecture, he'd make up a, like a string of words and he'd put these concepts together. And uh, since they were big sounding words, uh, no one ever like verified that what he's talking about had any rationality at all. It like it made sense. And and it was this culture of like confusion that allowed him to thrive. And so without having any credentials, like he was like the head of research at various places and he was considered for a professorship. And uh, he's able to pull this ruse on psychology because psychology is one of those professions where you could just make stuff up and no one, no one is going to know the difference. And so I think Molinism is the same way. Philosophy very much works like that. If, if the concept is confusing enough, you could squeak by because no one's going to call you on the confusion because the confusion sounds like rationality. And so it, it is a fu very funny phenomena. Uh, are, are given for a greater good that God hopes to achieve. But it seems to me that the real difference emerges with respect to moral evil, that is to say the sinful acts of human beings. What Molinism holds is that since human beings have genuine moral freedom to make choices, um, God knowing how they would choose in various circumstances allows them to make sinful decisions that he does not directly will. So by God's absolute... Yeah, the, the psychiatrist guy's name is Postel, P-O-S-T-E-L, and he, he wrote a book about it, how he defrauded the entire psychiatric community. And he did so be, with intent to show that psychology is, is not a real science, that uh, anyone could just make stuff up because... His mom was harmed by psychologists and she committed suicide or something like that. And so these things are possible. You, you could you could know nothing about a field. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein did this too when he when he got into uh, he, he got a professorship in just making up credentials. And then no one discovered that he had fabricated everything in his history. The, the, these things can happen. Will he wills everything good and every moral situation, God wills that a person do the right thing. But he knows that in many cases, people would not do the right thing. They would choose to do evil. And so he permits them to do that evil with a view toward achieving his ultimate purposes so that God's ultimate plan and providential purpose is achieved not by overriding human free will, but precisely through the free and sometimes sinful actions of human beings. And so I see this as being a vastly more plausible view of moral evil. Yeah, so the Molinist has an idea that this world is a maximum good world as well. So the Calvinist idea is evil is necessary because it uh, maximizes God's glory. Or the Molinist idea is that this is the, the best sequence of events that could fit together in the possible worlds. And so in each system, it's going for the maximum utility world, which in open theism, God's not a utility maximizing God to try to try to assign value to points to different events and then try to maximize those points. It's it's a weird concept. But, and Definitely a Platonistic concept. It's a Platonistic value set that they're looking for for this maximally great universe, which mirrors a maximally great God. Then the Calvinist view 
which says that God moves the will of creatures to do evil um, and is therefore the cause of their evil acts. Crystal uh, says that James White jumps in the Westmar confession. Uh, yeah, every time, every time of these people jump into confessions, I kind of tune out. It's like, oh man, oh, is that what we're doing here? Uh, going, going to confessions. And James White's big complaint against William Lane Craig is not using the Bible. And so, jumping to a confession, I, I don't think, uh, I, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't think the confessions are in fact in the Bible. I think they're just, they're just a string of things. Uh, that's that's very helpful, Bill, and, and a very succinct explanation. And and it involves this this concept which you've alluded to, uh, middle knowledge. This idea that God um, can see all all of the possible worlds that could exist, um, and, and what people would do under different circumstances. Yeah, Molinism works when you're looking at one hand and not the system holistically. The the system has internal contradictions, so you can't look at the the entire system at one time. You have to look. Uh, you have to parcel it out and say, "Oh, look over here." So this this event doesn't have to be set. It has conditions. It uh, it could be false. It could be true. You know, or in, indeterminate. But um, but God could also know it. On this other hand, well, how does God know it? In what way does God know it? In which which way? Um, if God fatalistically knows it, or unconditionally knows it, or unfalsifiably knows it, I had Tim Stratton say that God unfalsifiably knows things. How do you unfalsifiably know something that's uh, conditional, that could be otherwise? It, it doesn't work like that, especially eternal, ungenerated, innate, unfalsifiable knowledge of those those facts, circumstances. And then presumably instantiates that world. We're going to jump straight to James White. Well, there's a micromanaging on both sides. Um, and obviously in looking at possible worlds, feasible worlds, uh, God ends up micromanaging all the circumstances that people are placed in. And that's why a lot of people uh, reject Molinism is it, it seems like a, a strange autonomy when you say that everyone's doing everything freely uh, Jack says, I saw a video of James White refuting Greg Boyd. Immediately, he just started attacking his appearance for no reason. That's actually pretty funny. So that's a that's a good reason to, to do it right back to them. And then they're all offended. They're like, how dare you make fun of someone's appearance on the internet? It's like, you guys do it. Uh, when is the last time you saw some, some Calvinist saying, hey, James White, um, that's not cool how you attack people's appearances. He, like he's he looks like this uh, yas queen, you know, like yas queen, you, you go girl, shaking his head. That's what he does, and then he like makes fun of other people's appearances. That that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. But um, yeah, just ignore the Calvinist complaints. They 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 have no standards. So until they start policing their own, that's that's when I start uh, policing myself. Except they've been put in a position where that's what they would do. Before he's decreed to make that person but the the primary 
primary issue, and you said, where, where do I go when I hear this? First of all, we're asking the question, which gives the better answer? And coming as Christians, the answer to that is that which is... Yeah, John writes, the stream stopped. I've been having internet problems today. My, my uh, internet's not liking me. So I, it's off and on. It's giving me bad stuff. I restarted my modem and everything. It's like, come on, internet. Can't I just get... It's like all my babies. I got like seven kids and they're all on the internet. And so they flood flood my modem. And then I think it just crashes from overuse. In concert with and derived from what we have that the world doesn't have. And that is a divine revelation of scripture. So it needs to be something that is taught by the apostles. It needs to be something that is consistent with their teaching, or we're going to have to admit that what we have in scripture is insufficient to answer even the most basic questions. And so when we talk about the difference between a Calvinist and a Molinist, the assertion that is being made, and this is what came up in the, in the previous conversation, the assertion, and this, is, this was the clarifying remark that Bill made right toward the end of the discussion. Here's the quote. What the Molinist does say that the Calvinist does find objectionable is that God is not in control of which subjunctive conditionals are true. He doesn't determine the truth value of these subjunctive conditionals. That's outside his control. So let me ask, let me ask Bill directly. Would you agree that these truth values of these subjunctive conditionals, that is the essence of what middle knowledge is? Would, would you agree with that? No, I, I don't think I would, but I would say that's certainly an essential aspect of it. Um, the idea is that these counterfactual conditionals are true logically prior to the divine decree and are therefore independent of God's will. Uh, God does not determine what free creatures would do in any situation in which they find themselves. He takes hands off, so to speak, and says, okay, you make the decision. And I find the Calvinistic view less plausible, James, because it says that in any situation, it is God who actually moves the will of the creature to do evil, um, and therefore makes God the author of evil. Whereas on the Molinist view, as I say, what creatures would freely do in any situation is uh, logically prior to God's will, uh, and therefore it is, it is creatures that are responsible for natural evil, not God. That, that is interesting. Um, so creatures are choices, even though we don't exist um, before God. Our choices exist before God. Before there's there's a logical priority, and he uses those words logical priority because he can't have a chronological uh, priority. It has to be like a instantaneous. Even though one thing's dependent on another, it can't be chronological because that would violate his understanding of God's omniscience, in which God can't at any point in history and time not have unfalsifiable knowledge of the future. And so everything has to be compacted into a hierarchy, but that hierarchy has to be given a different label than chronological. So he calls it a logical priority. So our actions are logically prior to God's knowledge of our actions, even though we don't exist, even though God eternally has unfalsifiable knowledge of our actions, somehow there's a category you could label it as prior to God. And so that it's, 
it's one of the Molinist tricks to try to try to try to uh, get through some of the problems there, the grounding problems. Okay. Well, uh, you, you did say though that the Robert writes, "What are subjective conditionals um, based on a subject, um, and that thing could be true or false based on that subject." So it's it's probably like. I could choose to do X, Y, or Z. I could choose to wear a red shirt or a blue shirt. That's kind of a subjective conditional that's based on my subjective decisions in real time. And then somehow God has access to that eternally in the past, what color shirt I'd wear tomorrow. Use, using the common example, a colored shirt tends to be a, a common example for these types of discussions. These subjunctive conditionals are definitional to middle knowledge they are necessary to it yes um and yet they are outside of god's control yes. so but they are also they also do not arise from creatures because they have not been decreed to be created yet right right so where do these truth values come from if they do not come from god yeah and do not come from god's creatures because you say that god's decree is delimited by okay i'm gonna i'm gonna predict i'm gonna predict william lane craig's gonna say it does come from god's creatures well uh uh what's what james white uh, everyone says james white lives rent three in people's heads i don't even know his name until i have to think about it a little bit james white says uh uh it doesn't come from the creatures in your system and william lane craig's gonna say it does and right. come on um, william lane craig takes into account the right. technology you used just a few moments ago on this program delimited by and takes into account middle knowledge. So we have something that has truth value that delimits and determines the range of God's decree, what's feasible for him and what's not, but it doesn't come about from God's creative action. So where does it come from? This is an objection to middle knowledge that's known as the grounding objection. It claims there needs to be some sort of ground of the truth of these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. And here I frankly agree with Alvin Plantinga that it's much clearer to me that at least some counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are true than that they must be grounded in this way. This objection seems to pre uh, presuppose a view of uh, truth called truth maker theory, that in addition to propositions that are true, there are things, truth makers, that make them true. And I think that this doctrine is very implausible and that there are lots of counterexamples to truth maker theory and to truth maker maximalism, which says that every proposition has a truth maker. Take just one example of the problem. So both Calvinism and Molinism do this thing where God's knowledge is inherent and he doesn't actually receive this knowledge based on outside factors. So he doesn't like gain from outside factors. And so it, it just so happens to be that the unfalsifiable truth values that God knows about the future just so happen to materialize in time throughout history in the exact same way. And one's not based on the other or feeding to another. And so their solution to this problem is it just is the case that these things are true and God knows them unfalsifiably, but also at the same time, they don't have to be true. Really? So you got an unfalsifiable eternal truth value that has no, no grounding. There, there's no ground for this truth, 
but that thing could be different. That could could be otherwise. Um, can you demonstrate that? At that, at the, it's it's not a logical. That's not a logical position. So uh, here we got a comment. It says, according to Google, subjective conditional, the conditional that talks about what would happen or what one would do in circumstances, the subjunctive talks about that situation in which uh, is uncertain, unreal, or just a wish. Also, subjective mood talks about urgency or importance of something. And so it, subjective in the Bible, when you're talking about subjective case in the Greek, it's, it's like a question or or a possibility perhaps jesus says perhaps some of you will still be alive when i come back that's subjective because it could be true doesn't have to be true it's it's a it's a variable thing and so sub, we got subjective or we got subjective there there's two words that we've been uh, talking about so subjective means based on the subject so if it's a subjective com, uh, conditional then it's conditional based on a subject. But if it's subjunctive, that means it has a variable truth value. It doesn't have to be true or false. Proposition that bail does not exist. There's nothing that makes that true. Um, bail just doesn't exist. So if there is a truth maker of that, it's just the fact that there is no bail. Preach the word says, get rid of your AOL. Ah, ah yeah, I know. Um, Similarly, uh, if one wants to identify truth makers for these counterfactuals of freedom, it would just be the counterfacts that are stated by them. Uh, if it were true that if I were rich, I would buy a Mercedes, then the truth maker for that is just the state of affairs that if I were rich, I would buy a Mercedes. And I, I don't think anything... God has given me certain gifts and withheld others. It has never been a part of my decision-making to, to be a center in the NBA because God right. did not gift me with the things that are requisite for being a center in the NBA. But the gifts that have been given to me are a part of his decree. They are, they, they are a part of his, the expression of his freedom in his creation. And so there are all sorts of those things that go into what any human being is not and I, i'm not even talking about the fallen nature depravity um mm -hmm. the, the people around us that there's just so many of these things that would determine the things that we would do but as christians when we talk about plausibility the the real question for us should be would the apostles of the lord jesus christ would the prophets when they were speaking in isaiah concerning the nature of god we have something more than just simply philosophical plausibility arguments. We have the light of scripture. Yes, and so of course. if there is going to be the assertion as middle knowledge makes the assertion that there are these true subjunctive conditionals that are the basis upon which God's decree is acted out, I think it is quite, it is quite necessary for us as Christian theologians to say, from whence comes that which 
limits what God can do and how he can do it. Just before you come back on that bit, we're going to go to a quick break. I apologize for, for interrupting here. And it'd be interesting to hear because there seems to be this specific problem that James has with the idea that God's, um, if you like, is at some level hands off, as you we're, said. We're skipping the break. As well. So great to have two such minds joining me on Unbelievable today. Um, so just just to recap briefly, Bill, one of James's key objections to this Molinist view that effectively there is this middle knowledge that God has access to and then God instantiates um, the world in which he his his purposes come to to being but still effectively allows freedom on the part of humans because he knows what they would do in such a world um and and for james obviously this I so notice that that uh very interesting facet that uh if our actions and determinations are prior to god we're co-eternal with god we we're we're really as necessary as God is in in all these systems which require fatalism in Arminianism, in Molinism, and in Calvinism. Uh, human beings are co-necessary, co-equal, co-eternal with God. We're just as necessary to this universe as God is. We're fatalistically intertwined with God. God can't make new decisions. God can't change the future. In Molinism, he can't. In, uh, in uh, traditional Arminianism, he can't. And in Calvinism, he can't. Because what he knows about the future is unfalsifiable. It can't not be. So what he knows will be, will be. He can't change that. Or else he wouldn't have unfalsifiably knew that uh, he, he wasn't going to do that. Right? And so all creatures in these systems are co-equal, co-eternal with God, co-necessary for the universe. God's just a facet of the universe in all these systems. The idea of, of God's um, being there, there being this delim. All right. John says, can you explain middle knowledge in simple terms? Okay. So middle knowledge is the idea that God knows unfalsifiably all things in the future. What color shirt I'm going to wear tomorrow. But that event is not fated to happen because it could have been otherwise. And so God knows it as an indeterminate state not a fatalistic state. And so this is their way to try to get around the problem of fatalism in knowing the future by saying these future propositions have this indeterminate state where it could be true, could be false. It could be, my shirt could be yellow. It could be orange. I, I don't have to wear a shirt. It could be uh, one of those uh, 17th century frizzy things, something like that. So Conditionally, it could be different. And because God knows it as conditional, it's not a fatalistic act. We're, we're not fated to do things in the future because it could be otherwise. But where it falls apart is that the knowledge that God has of those events are unfalsifiable. So in what way could those other things ever have happened? In what way could they have occurred? In what way could they have materialized? Really, they can't. So this is no different than in Calvinism, where God determines all things forces all things to happen, and I pick to wear a black shirt tomorrow, it may seem to us that I could have picked a red shirt, but reality, reality is, if Calvinism was true, if you look behind the scenes, God's micromanaging everything to extent that there wasn't actually, I couldn't actually have done that and wore a different shirt. And so it, it's a fatalistic system. Molinism adds a couple steps between that to try to obfuscate the problems that the system it tries to solve a problem by adding an additional layer. It's a, it's a bait and switch. They're, they're, they show you what's on the left hand and then show you what's on the right hand. 
and uh, try to disconnect those two things. But the grounding obje objection is the same for Calvinism, Arminianism, and, and, and in fact, uh, <laughs> in fact, Molinism. All right, so it's knowledge of what hypothetical person X would do in situation A. Ravisary writes that. But uh, more than that, God knows unfalsifiably the truth value. And in addition to that, he knows possibilities of what could have happened in other circumstances. And uh, one facet of Molinism is that God looks at all these possibilities in the future for every single action, and then he actualizes a world, he picks a path, he makes sure to create things in such a way that the optimal world comes about. Because he, he knows all the paths, so he picks the optimal path. And that, that's what our universe is. It's the, it's the optimal world. Limiting aspect to this seem, seems to be a problem. Um, that, 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 that effectively, there are truths that it... I'm going to predict I'm going to wear a green shirt tomorrow and a black shirt at some point in the day. Exist. Yes. that are not effectively created by God. And, and you say this is sounds like the truth maker sort of objection and you just don't see that right. this is a particular problem. I, I mean, just to help me here, is it rather like, are you saying it's it's a bit like the objection to God that says, can God create a stone so heavy that he can't lift it, that God, God isn't required to sort of be bound by effectively, you know, logically impossible no, things. I is, don't is that, think that's different the point. To that? no, 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 I don't think that's the point, Justin. The, the point rather is that this grounding objection presupposes a particular theory of truth called truth-making, uh, and in a particular version of that called truth-maker maximalism, that every truth has a truth-maker without exception. And as I already indicated, I think there are very plausible exceptions to truth maker maximalism and i think the most philosophy crystal writes that calvinism is demonic as far as i'm concerned makes my heart want to throw up very well could be uh, definitely has gnostic tendencies which seems to be anti-christian and uh, strongly condemned in the early church within the bible but uh it, it is pretty interesting what they're saying I, i'd like to see a william lane craig versus rhoda molinism states that our actions are free. We have free will. And now they're saying that truth makers don't have to exist and our actions could be known and determined before we ever exist to make those actions. So in what way is that preserving free will? If even before I'm born, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, eternity into the past, all my decisions are not only known, um, but they're unfalsifiably known before I even exist to make them. Again, Molinism creates a world unintentionally. They, they don't claim it, so I'm not representing what a Molinist would say. They make a world where all, all human beings are our biological robots. We get input, we spit, spit out output based on that input. And so we don't actually have free will. We, there might be internal processes that spit out that app output, but really it's just internal mechanisms that we, we can't falsify. We, we must act in certain ways based on predefined uh, circumstances. Remember, remember what he said. William Lane Craig says, well, he knows what we will choose in every situation. That doesn't sound like free will to me. That sounds like input. There's inputs that go into us. You could tweak those inputs and you can know exactly what outputs those are going to be. We are human robots in Molinism. That's not their own claim, but that is the consequence of their system. Philosophers would probably 
agree with that. And certainly counterfactuals of freedom would be prime candidates for being exceptions to truth maker maximalism. But let me address just a couple of other points James made. First of all, his point that people don't exist in a sort of vacuum, but have a whole history of their character and background. Jack says, I'm an open theist and a universalist. These guys would be horrified at the side of me. I was thinking of actually making a, one of my thumbnails, like seven reason uh, your pet dog's going to burn in hell for all eternity. And then just have like the video about something else just completely random and unrelated. And it'd just be pretty funny to, for people to like click on that or, or see that and uh, get horrified. But I don't think Jack thinks all dogs go to heaven. Maybe he does. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not all cats. It tends to be that someone's a dog person. They don't like cats. Maybe <laughs> there's a charismatic preacher I was listening to once who's he's like, ah, oh, you're a dog of yours. It's going to go to hell. <laughs> then he's like, and nothing's going to hell faster than that fluffy cat of yours. It's like, what is this sermon? What is going on? I don't even know. And characteristics um, that shape what they freely decide. And of course, I agree with that. And the point is that these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom factor that in. Uh, what what freedom do we have in Molinism? What freedom do we have to actually pick things? I don't think we do. Crystal hits the nail on the head, writes, I believe God created us just free, just like he is. So in their system, God cannot add one raindrop to one storm. Uh, the Will Duffy, Matt Slick debate. Matt Slick would not answer. Can God add one raindrop to one storm? And he's flustered and he, he keeps stalling. He wouldn't answer it because literally in their system, God does not have the ability. God cannot add one raindrop to one storm because that violates in which way he knows the future. Again, God is just an, as much of an object of fate as us in all these systems. It's what their systems necessitate. The counterfactuals of creaturely freedom that God considers are usually thought to include the whole history of the world up to the time of the decision. And then God uh, asked, what would the creature do freely in that situation? So Ravisseri writes that that one thing Molinists neglect to explain, every possible world is a single result from beginning to end. And I think I cover this in one of my my uh, Molinist videos that not only do you have that problem of us being necessary, but even if that wasn't the case, even if there is some sort of sequential, um, uh, logically prior choice of God that uh, is after our choice and actions and somehow it, his choice of creating this world was dependent on our choices of actions in history, even if you have that, all that sets in place is a series of fatalistic events. Everything's faded up from that point. So you got fatalism and you got necessity. I argue that Molinism entails both that everything is faded and everything is necessary. Two, two different problems for different reasons that their system does in fact have. Of course it reflects the creature's background, abilities, uh, proclivities, and so forth. But the...
that Molinism, while not taught in the scripture, my wife sends me a message. She's like, I've had horrible internet for five days. So um, I am paying for the fastest internet, uh, faster, fastest internet I've ever owned. And it keeps doing this to me. And so maybe it's a motive problem, as someone pointed out in the comments. But uh, here's Jack Peterson. He says that channel, The Beat with the Black Dude, has a video called Five Reasons I Believe in Eternal Hell. And uh, he's talking about something horrific with the upbeat music in the background. That's fantastic. I, I do enjoy that showmanship. I like that is consistent with the scripture. And this is part and parcel of reformed theology. Uh, for example, we would affirm things like the necessity of God's existence. Most reformed theologians would affirm God's timelessness and spacelessness. None of those things is taught in scripture, but they are all consistent with scripture. And so the idea of up. So when I talked to William Lane Craig, I used like my one question to ask him to talk to him about simplicity in God, because I really couldn't find if he actually believed in divine simplicity. And he stated to me in person at, at the SBL, my one question to him, I, I grabbed, he was at the same conference as I listening to the same speaker. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even him speaking at the time. It was, uh, it was something on Genesis on is Genesis literal, are, are these critical evaluations of Genesis accurate? And so I, I asked him about divine simplicity, and William Lane Craig said that he does not, does not affirm divine simplicity. So that was really interesting. He's of this opinion that uh, God was eternal and timeless and stuff until creation, and then like entered time, but is not divinely simple. And so he he is he is divergent from classical theism in at least that respect. Of worldviews or, or positions that are consistent with Scripture, though not explicitly taught by Scripture, is familiar in, in Reformed theology. And I think that Molinism makes the best sense of the scriptural data concerning divine sovereignty, which says that everything falls under God's decree, and it's affirmation of human freedom and responsibility. And it's only by denying the latter uh, that the Calvinist um, is able to treat the problem of moral evil by saying God is the one who determines how anyone would act in any situation God might place him in. Do you want to respond to some of those? Joe, Joe Cool, M. Call, McCall, Joe Cool, McCall says, when is this discussion from? This was just aired today, but it was like recorded like a week or two ago. So they've been advertising it a bit. Um, James White's not insufferable yet. And so maybe we'll get to the point where he is, in fact, I think there's some good talking from him coming up. So we'll see what that says. Problems. Bill has oh, yeah. that, James. Oh, yeah. There, there, there are so many. We'll never get to all of them. But, but obviously, um, in, uh, in the assertion that was made earlier, uh, when I quoted from, uh, for example, the... Uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, I pointed out, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever. <laughs> Robert writes, uh, James White sure dresses cool. ...ever comes to pass, yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So 
Well, oh, obviously, if there's some sort of confession that has like a string of words together, obviously that confession is accurate and also means Calvinism. Obviously, uh, Reformed theologians have strongly emphasized all the issues in regards to secondary causation and uh, how God works in time. And of course, I have argued for quite some time that the incarnation of Christ demonstrates that we're not talking about puppets on strings. We're talking about the reality. Right. The word became flesh. Becoming is a change. God changes. Of God expressing his pleasure in his creation and in such a way creating mankind so that what happens in the drama of redemption reveals all of God's attributes. So the, the real issue is when God decrees. I, I like uh, William Lane Craig's face throughout this whole thing. It's just like, uh, I don't know if that's just because he's old or because uh, White's insufferable, as uh, Irenic writes down here. Is what flows from his decree freely coming from his will or is it delimited by something we don't know where it comes from? It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from his creation. And that is these this counterfactual knowledge that we are not we're, we are being told. Well, that's just a, a truth maker theory of knowledge. I would say, from a biblical perspective, if we're going to say that the great Yahweh is limited in what He can do, what is feasible for Him to do, can God add one raindrop to one storm, James White? I, I can't. Can God do that? then we need to know from whence comes this strange delimitating uh, authority. I don't think that Before, has anything to do with it, philosophy. It has to do with it, a claim is being made. So we need to know where that's coming from. Before Bill comes back on that again, I, I do just want to pick up though, just for my sake, as much as anything, the, 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 the fact that you say you don't, you know, reform theology has always had in its confessions, this view that, God is is not responsible for moral evil. Right. Um, uh, uh, now you, you talk about secondary causes and so on, just just for those who aren't familiar, right. because on the face of it, what Bill has said is, in his view, Calvinism does make God effectively responsible. Right. Why, why isn't God responsible? Why isn't God, as it were, culpable and humans are, even when God has ultimately set everything in such a way that it was always going to be this way? You know, that, well, well, this was... Pre there's there's, three, things, there's two things to recognize. We have we have God's eternal decree, which is not accessible to us. We are time-bound creatures. Then we have his prescriptive decree, which is what he's revealed to us as to what we are to do, what our duties are before him, etc., etc. We So let's talk about these multiple decrees. And so Calvinists do this thing where God can't be thwarted, God's will can't be thwarted, but we see throughout the Bible that what God wants doesn't come about. God wants uh, the lawyers to be baptized, and they just don't do it. The scribes and Pharisees don't get baptized into Christ. And so they come up with this theory where you categorize things. Oh, there's like a general call, like God calls all to be saved, but only effectually calls some. So he has this, this uh, oh, two different wills. And like this one's, one's effective will that uh, anyone he calls and actually wants to come is saved. These are the elect. And then these other people, this is just like a general call. It's, it's kind of like a little facade. But the thing is that what they're doing is they they don't understand that God faces trade-offs. You know, um, I, I use use the example all the time that you know, yeah, God can bring everyone to heaven, but then you're living with Hillary Clinton for all eternity. Not even Bill Clinton wants to do that. Um, 
And so um, you, you face trade-offs. You can't get everything you want. I want my kids to be happy at all moments of their life. I want them to eat ice cream every day, all day. But there is a trade-off to eating ice cream every day, all day. You get fat, right? And so there's limitations, time limitations. You know, um, I like spending time with my kids. I, I like maximizing the time with my kids. The time I spend with my kids, I can't spend doing other things. And so just, just the nature of reality, we face trade-offs. And so you could want something, but give it up for something else. God did not want Jesus to be crucified on the cross. Jesus didn't want to be crucified on the cross. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world. God loves the world. He says it in this way, God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So God had a trade-off. God loved Jesus, but God also loved the world. And you, you can't, you can't have both. Uh, so he has to sacrifice one for the other. And so this shows you that God's love over here um, was uh, great but his love for the world was greater and he's going to sacrifice one for the other. God faces trade-offs. God doesn't always get what he wants. We don't even always get what we want. And this, this is, this is really antithetical to Calvinism um, where they, they, they take in Platonistic uh, philosophy in which God always gets what God wants. God can't, God doesn't face trade-offs. There's nothing that God's in need of. Uh, he's like the ultimate creature, which can't gain from outside himself. So God does not face trade-offs. So they have to come up with this category of two wills, like an effective will and just like a prescriptive one. Oh, I don't want you murdering each other, but really I'm writing a story in which you murder each other all the time everywhere. That's what they do. And so um, it's it's false categories that don't exist in the real world that they make up to force Calvinism into the Bible. These are not biblical categories. They only have access to that. And that is revealed to us in his word, in scripture, and in the, in the nature of the world around us. And so in scripture, we are given numerous examples where God explicitly... Ironic says, not necessarily, I eat tons of ice cream and weigh about a buck 30. Well, you probably have like a lactose problem, so it might go straight through. You might not absorb those. It's like me and Taco Bell. You don't absorb those calories. They just go in and you might as well eat Taco Bell in the bathroom. And uh, it saves you a lot of time. It says Genesis 50, 20. It's been discussed on your program many, many times by all sorts of different people. But the text says what the text says. Joseph, knowing that his brothers have committed evil against him, knowing that what they did was wrong, knowing even that God had actually restrained their evil. I, I don't know why God didn't just put him in a situation where they would do freely but God actually restrains men's evil. God actually hardens men's hearts in other situations. Why would he have to do that if he's meticulously controlling everything? So I don't have to restrain my kids unless um, they're free will creatures, right? So God actually restraining and hardening hearts and, and uh, turning Nebuchadnezzar into a wild beast in order to get him to change his behavior, swallowing Jonah to force him to go preach. These all tell us that People generally have free will. And when the Bible says that people are subverting God's will, that it's, it's, it's actually accurate because he has to take positive, coercive, physically coercive steps in order to change what they're doing. Why would he need to do any of this if he has just put them in situations where they act freely? But in the situation of what the brothers did to Joseph, God specifically says through scripture 
you meant this for evil. He does not excuse their sin. He does not say, oh, you're just puppets on a string, so it doesn't really matter. He knew what filled their hearts. He knew that God had restrained them from killing him. And yet in the very same sentence, he says, God intended it for good and to save many alive to this day. He uses the exact same Hebrew term in both places. It can't be avoided. And so in one horrific act, I mean, think and so, yeah, he, he is actually referring to biblical verses here. And um, every, every time the Calvinist turns to the Bible, they have to hijack language, hijack words and insist on very um, in implausible or not implausible, but implausible definitions of words. And the word used there in Genesis is weaved. You were weaving these events for bad. God weaved them for good. Yeah, God, God can do things. God can do things. Yes, we all agree there. God can take a bad situation and make it a good situation. So it doesn't mean that God made the situation bad in the first place. That's, that's, that's not what's going on there. Think of the evil of the brothers in deceiving their father and his grieving and wailing and sending their brother off into slavery. This is horrible stuff. And yet God intended it for good. And so We've whatever you yeah. do, if you take scripture as the highest norm, as Jesus taught us to, then you have to norm everything else by that. And we are given examples there in Isaiah 10. So, sounds like synergism, handsome general says. And that's actually funny because the word synergy is found within the Bible. And Calvinists hate synergy. If, if you're a, They use it as like a pejorative. And it's, it's one they came up with. So Calvinists do this thing where they make up words and then use those words as pejoratives. But it, So they have this word called monergist. And then they contrast that with synergist. But the thing is, Synergy comes from Greek roots, and that's a word used in the Bible about how God interacts with the world synergistically. And so it's like God works all things together for the good of those who love him. The word there is synergy. God synergistically works with us to make all things good. Yeah, yeah, God works with us. Synergy is true. It's in the Bible. It's a biblical word, but the Calvinists will have, uh, they'll go into like epileptic shock if you try to point out that synergies. A biblical concept and it's true it's, it's in the bible in acts chapter 4 of where god's sovereign decree limits man's evil and accomplishes god's purpose through that evil and that god then judges men not for their knowledge of a divine decree but for acting upon the desires of their hearts that's the basis of what the judgment is made upon so we've this has been discussed, and, and if you want to get real philosophical about it, by Jonathan Edwards and others for quite some time. But I just point out that in dealing with our subject, Molinism, we're dealing with a perspective unknown in the history of the church for 1,500 years. And it doesn't come, up, come into expression until someone is seeking to fundamentally undercut the gospel being preached by the reformers, by Calvin and Luther. So Molinism is, is a system, it's a model that they're trying to fit the biblical data into. The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. So if anyone's ever told you that the Bible is in fact a systematic theology, they should actually go look at what a systematic theology looks like and how it's structured and how it reads. The Bible is not that. It does not give us uh, foundational metaphysics by which we explain the world around us. It gives us loose details. It gives us narrative. It gives us stories. 
it gives us practical guidance. The Bible is mostly focused on practical guides to living, practical guides for relationships with God, practical worship, practical ways to interact with others, practical governance uh, of nations. This, the Bible cares about practicality, not metaphysics. It's not a metaphysical textbook. So William Lane Craig and James White are both bringing systems to the Bible models in order to explain the text. And so this is a very weird, very weird uh, criticism that James White has. The Bible is just not a systematic theology textbook. That's just not what we're reading. Luther. And so it's a more of a modern situation, but it wasn't something that people reading scripture for 1500 years said, oh yeah, there it is. And yeah, and, so, and I think I mean, that's I mean, very, the, very important. I want to be able to expand the, upon that. There's a number of objections there, there, Bill, coming coming back at you in in that sense. But but I mean, let's take the, the you know that that example from Scripture: Joseph and his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I mean, is is that a kind of a good example of Calvinism, or could it just as easily no, be applied to a Molinism? It's a, a, a great Molinist example story. of Molinism. <laughs> I love the Joseph story because it so perfectly illustrates human freedom within the providence. You see James White's face when he when he's laughed. He's getting laughed at. He's getting laughed at in public by a scholar, a well-regarded scholar, and James White thrives off of hubris. He cares so much about himself and his self-perception and and uh, how others perceive him. And he's getting laughed at in public. His face is priceless. Of God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and has brought it to pass. God didn't move <laughs> the brothers to <laughs> hate <laughs> Joseph, to kill him, oh. to throw him into a pit, to lie to their father. That would make God the author of evil. But God <laughs> knew that if they were in this situation, they would behave in these evil ways, but that ultimately this would uh, redound to the salvation of Israel and its rescue from famine and, and all the rest. So this is a story that wonderfully <laughs> illustrates, I think, uh, how Molinism resolves. He's this. not happy. He's not happy. Oh, James White's not happy being laughed at at public. Oh, it's so funny. Antinomy of human freedom and evil <laughs> and God's uh, sovereign providence. Uh, and the fact that this wasn't introduced <laughs> into theology until Molina I think is a function of the fact that although people were groping for this view prior to Molina, you can show historically people foreshadowing this. It took a theological giant of the stature of... Yeah, James White does not be like laughed at. And so um, remember James White brief interaction with uh, my debate with uh, Madden, Daniel Madden, and he said, this guy's just sitting there smirking the whole time. He's getting all mad about my smirking and laughing. He's like, ah, oh, I'm not even interested in debating this guy ever. He doesn't want to get laughed at. He doesn't, he doesn't like being the object of uh, levity. He doesn't like being laughed at. It's, it, he cares about his, his uh, outside perception, how people perceive him. He wants to be the scholar. He wants to be the person who's always right, who has the sycophants. That's who he wants to be, and he's getting laughed at. Oh, it's it's hilarious. I love it. I love it. Don't let that lower lip hang down, ironic writes. That is his face. Oh, his face is so glum. It's uh, spectacular. Someone like Molina to draft and defend this theory. It is it is brilliant. Uh, 
And so it wasn't an attempt to undermine the Reformation. What it was an attempt to do was to... I wonder why, um, maybe that's the reason that James White came out with like a pre-debate framing video. Like he put out a video before this was published, but after the debate had actually physically taken place. So maybe he's trying to frame the debate um, favorable to him before it actually came out. And so that people are more on his side when when this this whole uh, interaction goes down. So he he primes he primes his viewers um, what to expect and uh, not to uh, take this shock value and internalize it. He's prepping his followers. I'm pretty sure that's what's happening. I might I might have to go back and watch that video. Reconcile divine sovereignty and human freedom. Molina. Jack writes that he prayed for James White recently. Yeah, keep praying. Prayer, prayer is effectual. And so pray for James White. I was under the conviction that Calvin and Luther had annihilated human freedom. So Irenic actually is on to something very key here for public debates. This is public debate is a physical medium. It, it's a, it's it's visual. You get visual and audio stimulus. And uh, laughter and ridicule is an incredibly powerful tool. So James White went on this big uh, rant about his perspective, about this, this verse in Genesis, about the Joseph and the brothers. And in two seconds, it, it is, it's, it's thwarted. It's undermined, this laughter. Um, a good example of this is the Trump debates during the 2016 election where Megyn Kelly tries to say, hey, Trump, uh, you called women fat and pigs and stuff like that. And then what's his response? Only Rosie O'Donnell, which of course is not true. He's called many women that or what, whatever, but it, it changed the tone and temperature in the room. Everyone thought it was the funniest thing ever. The audience was laughing in hilarity. It disarmed the question. She didn't get any answers she's looking for. Didn't get the gotcha. And it, it turned the energy. This, this two-second quip. I think that's what we see here in this debate. That's why these types of debates, live debates, where you got the physical presence, you're, you're, you're seeing, you're using visual and audio, um, they're so effective to actually know how people respond to stimuli. It can't, it can't be like a, a dead debate going back and forth. You're going to lose those debates because people don't think in those terms. They, they don't they don't write down all the evidence and then stack it up against this other list of evidence. They pay very much attention to people's confidence, like John Sanders versus James White. John Sanders did not show very much confidence. And even though he had really good arguments, you write them down on paper, you write, write down both transcripts on paper, James White is considered the winner because he confidently stated his beliefs. It's it's all perception, audience perception. Um. And he wanted to show that you can affirm full divine sovereignty, but without turning human beings into automata and making God the author of evil. And, if and Sam writes, yeah, James Wright respects Muslims, but shows zero respect for Christians he disagrees with. Well, who could blame him? Uh, Muslims are more likely to take him out back and cut his head off. I don't think Christians are going to do that. We can come back. Later, I want to give James a chance here, but I'd like to come back and offer an argument um, based on the Bible for the truth of the doctrine of middle knowledge. I would love to hear that. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing to, to do. And I'm sure James would, would respond. But but there you go. I mean, as far as Bill's concerned, 
it, it fits Molinism better than Calvinism, the Joseph story, James. What do you not, say to that? Uh, well, <laughs> if you're actually going <laughs> to take something from the Jesuits, and the Jesuits, by the oh, way, were charged the with undoing the Reformation. That's why Molina did what Molina was doing, but to rescue, rescue the sacramental system of Rome. But if you take some- Look at that cope. It's this, um, he's got this internal laughter that he's trying to display, but it's it's eating him inside. It's it's not like a genuine happiness, and you can see it in his face and his expressions. Oh, oh, this is glorious. Look at, he's got this internal rage and uh, that that he's controlling, this internal, internal conflict. <laughs> oh. Something that was developed 1,500 years later. Read it Look back into something that oh, was about 1,400 years before Christ, so almost 3,000 years later, as if that's what was trying to I'm be sure communicated by Joseph. That Joseph had this idea. No, he I'm understood. Not that. He understood. Joseph understood why, if that's true, if this is a picture He's of Molinism, why did God have to restrain the brothers from killing Joseph? Didn't he know that that's what they would want to do? He literally violated their creaturely freedom by restraining them from killing Joseph. Remember, the older brother had to be brought in to do right. that. Right. And so he, why, how does that, how does anything where God hardens hearts? Look at it. This is fantastic. This this is how you debate. This is how you do it. You you get you 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 hit them where it hurts. And literally, I don't think it was William Lane Craig's arguments. The laughter did it. It was the laughter because uh his pride cannot accept being laughed at publicly. And it flustered him and now he's he's trying to get out this defense, but it's obvious this internal internal conflict inside his skid. Oh, oh, it's so good. So that nations are destroyed. Hardens Pharaoh's heart. He he restrains evil with, with Abimelech. He restrains evil with Joseph's brothers. This seems to be God acting against autonomous actions of men. If middle knowledge gave him the basis for just putting him in the proper situations, why would he ever have to then, as, as Justin put it earlier, if it's a hands-off thing, how much? How come there's so much hands getting involved here? <laughs> the heads up. <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't oh, mean oh. to deny God's miraculous oh. intervention in. The oh, he got laughed at again. Watch his face. He's just laughed at again. Oh, his his brows are furrowing. He's not happy. He's not happy. It's like an angry dog. The dog kind of is like growling, but it's like, mm. oh, A series of secondary causes. But in the case, for example, uh, was it Ruben oh, who said, that was, Let's that was not the angriest drink I've ever seen him in the pit? What we can say is that God knew that the, this brother would do that and that the others would freely listen to him rather than say that God is determining them to act in this way. Uh, and I'm not suggesting Shredhead says James can't even respect William Lane Craig for his own opinion, has to map it to the Jesuits. I really think this is part of him getting flustered that he turned there he's just he's throwing out anything because oh he's taken him back oh i i really think that's what's happening here thing that the biblical author had molinism in mind of course not what i'm saying is that this is a theory to reconcile sovereignty and human freedom that is consistent with the bible it affirms the facts of sovereignty and freedom without bruising or uh, annihilating one set of the data. So, Bill, when I when I when I go to Ephesians one, and I talk about the eudicia of his thelematos, the 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 kind intention that which is pleasing to him 
of his will. So, so yeah, notice the strategy here. Okay, so throughout your Greek words, um, I know these two Greek words, therefore I'm the scholar and professional, and so what I say is true. Uh, this, this, it, it, it's a coping mechanism. I think this is one of his desperate attempts to to regain the upper hand in this debate. I'm the expert here. I know these Greek words. I think that's what's happened. And that is made to be the very source of everything God has done in predestination election. It, it's the counsel of his thelematos, his belay of his thelematos in verses 10, 11, oh. that determines everything that takes place. He's worked all things after the counsel of his will. Well, like Craig yes. is like, yeah. How is that? That, that, is, that is central to what the Calvinist is saying in regards to God, how God is working. And it is coming forth from the text. Do you see a difference between that approach and what you just did with Genesis 50, where you go, yes, this theory comes along 3,000 years later. He's not happy. It, what, he's, he's angry. Oh, okay, here, we, we, I can't do a Steve Irwin voice. It's like... Looky here, we got an angry boy. I'll poke him with this stick. Ah, he's, he's, he's angry. <laughs> but we can consistently apply it to what was written. I don't want to lose my place, but a very interesting thing would be to just like jump back here and watch how he's talking previously and watch his tone and cadence now. It's different. It's changed. There's been a shift. All that way back then and come up with an interpretation of that. Do you see a difference between having our theology derived from the text and having something that determines what our theology can be that comes from outside the text? Well, I don't think that your theology or the Calvinist theology is derived directly from the text in that way. It seems to me that we're both trying to enunciate theological models that will make sense of the data of Scripture. But the Scripture nowhere teaches unilateral divine determinism of every human act, especially evil acts, uh, James. So yeah, to watch William Lane Craig's emotional and tonal shifts as well. So there, it, it goes from levity into teaching mode. Now he's in teaching mode. It's, it's not anger or frustration. It's more of like, here's here's the way things are. And that's the, the, that's the tone he's giving out, which is a correctional tone versus James White's defensive tone. It's not looking good tonally. This debate is totally, tonally not looking good for James White. James, I mean, the Bible says God uh, can he, is not evil and can't even be tempted with evil. And yet on this view, it is God who moves the will of the creature. <laughs> oh, oh, did you watch that head shift with uh, James White? Oh, I, let's, let's try to rewind just a little bit. And rewatch that head shift. Watch it, uh, James. I mean, the Bible says God uh, can is not evil and can't even be tempted with evil. And yet, on this view, it is God who moves the will of the creature to do sinful acts, and then He punishes them for it. Okay, um, so so so. so you, I mean, if it's evil to cause someone to do evil, it makes God Himself evil. Okay, so when the Bible in Isaiah chapter 10, says that God brings the Assyrians to punish Israel yes. and then turns around and punishes the Assyrians for the haughty attitude of their heart. Ah. How is that not more clear 
than what you just said. You just said that you can derive something from the text and you derived your, your desire to say that Calvinism is causing God to be the author of evil and so on and so forth. Hmm. And we know he won't do that. You can derive something from the text in that way. Well, How come when I go to Ephesians 1 and yeah. it specifically says it is the, the, the desire of his will, that which pleases him. So William Lane Craig has already verbally indicated to the audience that he has an answer. He said, ah, and he wanted to respond. James White keeps talking. William Lane Craig is smiling and uh, James White continues talking. James White's not interested in answer. He doesn't want to actually examine his, his new proof text. He wants to continue making the point. Oh, it's not looking good. That is that is doing all things. You say, yeah, well, we no, you just have an that. outside system. We agree on that, James. That God <laughs> uh, issues his decree for oh. his good pleasure. And I would say this factors into it, human freedom and how human beings would choose. And it is God's pleasure not to determine creatures to do evil, not to determine them to sin. And it's so ironic because you keep appealing to these scriptural examples that I think support my... Yeah, he's, he's laughing. He's laughing. Okay, what, what's this going to do? What's this going to do? Oh, so good. View. How can God punish the Assyrians oh, like for it. something that he causes them to do. Uh, no, watch, watch what his head it tilts. is is that God, knowing that the Syrians would freely invade at that time, uses the unrighteous Assyrians to do something that he knew they would freely do, and then he can justly punish them because this unrighteous act was done of their own free will. So... Uh, Yeah, this is this is killing me. It's killing me, Internet. You're killing me, Internet. Justly punished them because this unrighteous act was done of their own. We're, we're watching. Free will. Watch the shaking. So uh, over and over again, I'm finding that when I read, ah, the ah, ah. did you see the shake? Did you see the shake? As he's pulling back, he's shaking inside. He, he can't stand it. He can't stand it. These texts, from a Molinist perspective, it seems to me much more plausible than thinking that God is moving the wills of creatures to do. Yeah, literally the text does have God actually causing these people to come. He, he whistles for the Assyrians, and how he does it in context is uh, he makes sure that the Assyrians see all the wealth of Israel. And so it's, it's a blunt tool. It's not a micromanagement. And then actually in the Bible, the Assyrians overstep their delegated bounds, and so they're punished for their excesses. So they punished more than what God wants. So it's not a micromanagement, as James White says, and it's not a hands-off mentality as uh, William Lane Craig wants. Within the biblical text, they're, they're a blunt instrument. God wants Israel punished. We'll throw this nation at them. The nation oversteps their bounds, punish the nation. And the nation can be punished uh, either way. So it's like if you're in World War II and then you get the Russians to attack the Germans, 
you're, you're not wrong for doing that. And then if you attack the Russians after World War II, let's say you're General Patton and you say on to Russia and then you go after Russia after World War, World War II, you're not in the wrong for doing that. You used an enemy as a tool in a specific circumstance. It's not wrong, but God does, didn't micromanage it. Um, and uh, again, they exceeded their, their, their calling. But so um, I don't agree with either of them uh, about what the biblical text says, but it is funny just watching their expressions, their behavior, and how they're internalizing this debate, the levity that William Lane Craigs brings and, and the pose, um, how, how, he, how he postures himself and it's getting to James White. It's, I think if a neutral person who didn't understand a lick of theology is to read this, um, to watch this debate, they're going to read this body language and understand that William Lane Craig wins this debate. Too evil. But what did Isaiah intend his audience? They didn't have Molinism. So they no. could not have understood these texts. No one could understand Genesis 50-20. No one could understand Isaiah 10. I guess oh. we could just go, well, you know, it, it's going to take oh. another couple thousand years before we can know. Well, they, they clearly would understand Genesis when he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and has brought this to pass. It means God is sovereign over everything, uh, even though you committed these evil acts. And I think they would be left basically with a big question mark, as people have been for centuries. How do you reconcile this apparent antinomy of divine sovereignty and human freedom? And I think the answer didn't come until there arose a theological giant like Molina to craft this theory that reconciles them. I mean, essentially, I'm getting the sense then, James, that, that whereas you think Molinism was a, basically came a few thousand years later, Calvinism was essentially there in scripture from the beginning, that it wasn't something that also came a few that's thousand why, years that, later. That's when... why I prefer Reformed <laughs> theology to Calvinism anyways. But the, the point is the... Why it happened? Yeah, this is my internet is going crazy tonight. I don't know. I'm gonna have to give him a call and figure that that nonsense out. Demonstrates that it is God's self revelation. In He's revealing all of His attributes, all of His characteristics: His love, His mercy, His justice, and His righteousness. He's revealing all of this as He pleases to reveal Himself, not as He is delimited by the creatures that He has yet to decree to make within the Molinistic system. I do not believe that any of the apostles or any of the prophets... Ravisseri says Molinism and Calvinism are both effectively the same age. Well, you got some Molinistic beliefs in a third century commentary on Plato by a Christian, um, but uh, you have Calvinism predating that in Augustine and in Plotinus. Uh, well, the Gnosticism, it kind of comes from Plotinus. And then Philo of Alexandria, which is first century AD. So I'd say uh, Calvinism predates Molinism by maybe a couple hundred years. And it's a first century AD belief. And Calvin was 
a systematizer, but he really relied very heavily on uh, Augustinian logic, Augustinian texts, and uh, cites Augustine all over the place. He, he loves Augustinianism, which is really just Platonism. Platonism for Christianity. Who was that? That was uh, Nietzsche said that uh, Christianity is Platonism for the people. Anything that, because because you you said something I didn't get a chance to get back to it. You said that the whole history of the world, up to the point of a human decision, yes. is taken into consideration in the decree. Yes. And my point is that the gifts that are given to me, when I'm going to live, what my intelligent level is going to be, He's who angry. my siblings are. He's angry. Those are all a part of the decree. They cannot. Right. They are part of the decree that God has made for me. So I challenge the idea that there is a, a, an essence of James White that exists outside of God's decree to make James White as He's James angry. White is that could be known as to what I would do apart from the free expression of God's decree in making me who I am. Because it sounds to me like you're saying who I am is not the result of the expression of God's freedom. It was something God knew, but how he knew, we don't know. None of this is biblical. His objection is something like, oh, God needs to be the ultimate cause, philosophy, philosophy, not the Bible. Thanks, thanks James White. Th thanks for that. Uh, that was a nice rant. That's because you're a determinist, James. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and I'm not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that... Um, Watch his micro expressions. James White's uh, little flinching, his his eyes, his eyebrows. Um, you, you'll see like little palpitations in his head that he's controlling. This, this is fantastic. He is all over the place. You could have been very different. It's not about an essence of James White. Um, you might have been born in another country. You might have had uh, different hair color, uh, different weight different education. You might be speaking a different language rather than English. There, There's an indefinite number of possible worlds, which could include James White in them. And what I'm saying is that God doesn't determine that, that James White does evil in any of the circumstances in which he might exist. He's going to let James White decide for himself what he would do. Now, let me answer the question about where do I get this? Here's, here's, here's an argument for this. These counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are either true logically prior to the divine decree, or they are true only logically posterior to the divine decree. But they cannot be true only logically posterior to the divine decree because that makes God the author of evil. In that case, God is the one who determines how creatures would act in any of these circumstances. 
And therefore, by the very nature of the case, these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom must be true if they are true, logically prior to the divine decree. So on, on pain of attributing evil to God, it seems to me that we have to say that these counterfactuals are true logically prior to God's decree of a world. Well, I was hoping for, a, for, for biblical argumentation. Um, that is a, is a philosophical construct that assumes a number of things that have already been disputed, specifically in regards <laughs> to first and secondary causation. Okay, uh, so James White's strategy, he first goes on a philosophical rant about his system. William Lane Craig says, well, okay, that's not my system. Here's my system. It gives his system. And James White says, oh, but that's not based on biblical evidence. Yours wasn't either. Yours wasn't either. This is goalpost shifting. This is uh, inconsistency and double standards is what we're seeing going on here. It's a bait and switch. I talked about my philosophy, and then you talked about your philosophy. But since you didn't talk about the Bible, um, I'm going to criticize you on that point, even, even though I don't get criticized for the Bible on my point. Double standard. Specifically in regards to how God judges the world, uh, his relationship to his creation, all sorts of things like that. Is there not, will you admit then, that there is no text that we can go to that you can point to and says, that specifically teaches Molinism. That's that's where not. middle knowledge I, comes that. from. Of course you can't. <laughs> okay. Neither can so, you go to a text in scripture that teaches unilateral divine determinism. But I but I've uh, already I've already <laughs> then I'd like uh, to, to know what you do with Ephesians 1.11. What well what, I, that decree factors in God's or, or uh, human free will. God everything where's that, that in Ephesians about. chapter one, Bill? Can can someone just Quote Ephesians one eleven, just for those who don't have a photographic biblical memory. <laughs> okay, let me let me give. Hey, hey, just just watch watch his face, watch his head. Uh, we got to rewind just a little bit. Oh, watch this. Where's that, that in Ephesians about. chapter one, Bill? Can can someone just quote Ephesians? Fake smile. Watch his eyes flutter. He he looks down. Watch his face. One eleven, just for those who don't. Have he looks to the side. Lip bite. Worried expression have a photographic biblical memory <laughs> okay let me let me give get get with chapter with verse 10 so we have it with a view to the, this is talk about he purposed according Cluster. to his kind intention there it is eudicia which he purposed in him with a view and administration suitable to the fullness of times that is the summing up of all things in christ things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him also we have obtained an inheritance having predestined according to the purpose of of hit to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. This yeah. is the summing okay. up the of all. <laughs> uh, and William Lake Craig is like, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which is an instant signal to the audience that nothing that James White said means James White's view is true and William Lane Craig's views are false. So that, yeah, is verbal confirmation that he's he's not worried, he's not stressed, this is not a problem for his view. James White needs to keep talking. That he's he's just going to keep talking. He doesn't want th this is a classic strategy. I'm going to read my verse and I'm just going to talk and talk and talk about this verse and I won't let you talk about my proof text whatsoever about what you believe about this text. Classic strategy. And so you got to give those verbal indications in there to undermine what they're saying. All of creation that. His decree 
being accomplished. For example, the decree of Yahweh, Psalm 2 about the Messiah, all of these things, his decree is being accomplished, and it is the expression of the counsel of his will. Not James White has to frame the verse before William Lane Craig can frame what that verse is about. And so he's trying to do this debate thing where if you say something first, the audience more recognizes you and your position on that than someone who explains it after the fact. So he can't throw out a verse and have William Lane Craig directly explain what that verse means. It doesn't suit debate tactics. He, he he's not he's not a theologian. James White's not a theologian. He's a debater, and he wants to manipulate audiences. Not a decree that is based upon some type of external thing that delimits what he is feasible for him to do and cannot do. Quick, or even quick, to the quick point. response, Bill, and and then we'll go to a break, and we'll um, and I I would love to get to some some biblical arguments as well that that I know you wanted to sketch out as well. Uh, before the program ends, but, but go ahead, Bill. Well, I was going to say in terms of the biblical uh, proof texts, uh, there are lots of these counterfactuals of creaturely freedom in scripture. For example, one of my favorites is 2 Corinthians 2.8, where Paul says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that counterfactual of creaturely freedom is true. Uh, it's in scripture. You can't say that's a truth value gap. And so then my argument is, is this true logically prior to the divine decree or only logically posterior to the divine decree? And I don't think that James, you've ever squarely confronted the objection to saying that it's true only logically posterior to the divine decree I, I, namely that makes god the author of evil so it's good for james white to point when uh william Lane craig said the thing that he agrees with because he's indicating to the audience that that's his answer and that he has an answer yeah mid other person's uh d discussion on on that the point at hand and so that is that is a good debate tactic, but you do st still see his frustration going on. He is the one who determines how people act. Let's 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 ask. Let, uh, let, let's, let's let you come back. Look, look at look at his fake smile. Look at his handshaking. This is he's he's internalized his frustration. And he's trying to control it, but you are seeing it. You are you are seeing it come out in his his micro expressions on that james in just a moment i i know that you're keen to get get back on that that subject um we will be back in just a moment's time and i um i'm loving this discussion and debate on calvinism and molinism join us again in just a moment we'll continue debating the rights and wrongs of these two positions all right we're going to skip forward secular and skeptical world it can often particular verse which talks about if they had known what they were doing they would not have crucified the lord of glory and so on there are these counterfactuals in scripture says says bill james and uh and molinism is a very good explanation of that and and the fact that you know uh that there there are other possible things that would have happened in given different circumstances so i i think jack writes these guys just cherry pick stuff out of context to prove their positions when the bible clearly teaches open theism so william lane craig is really focusing his verses on counterfactuals that are
Yeah, I, th I think we're back. But uh, the Bible is filled with counterfactuals. And so William Lane Craig says, my views are not taught in the Bible because the Bible is not systematic theology. That is accurate. He also says there are counterfactuals in the Bible, and that is accurate. And so his idea is, this is Molinism, that counterfactuals are real things, and they're taught in the Bible. And so I, I don't think it's a bad strategy for teaching that. But what he doesn't show is that there's unfalsifiable truth values that are coexistent with counterfactuals, which seems like a non sequitur. It doesn't seem like that's an accurate way to view reality. They're not real counterfactuals if they cannot actualize, if there's no possibility, no probability, no possibility, no possible world in which they actualize. But God instantiates the one in which his will comes to pass mm. freely, uh, you know. So, so yeah, where, where do you go with these kinds of justifications of, of Molinism from scripture itself? Prior to Molina's attempt to undo the preaching of the Reformation, um, theologians understood that there were two kinds of knowledge in God is natural knowledge and is free knowledge. And there is no difficulty in looking at any text of scripture that has been raised in seeing as, as part of his natural knowledge or his free knowledge. How do we know who rulers are? They're created by God. How do we know how they could have anything to do with the crucifixion of Christ? Because they were put in that position by God's decree. That Not always. Sometimes in the Bible, uh, they make princes, but not through me. They, they appoint uh, rulers, but I knew it not. And so not always do people follow God, consult God, do what God wants. Sometimes they do it alone, and then they get criticized for that. That is the very essence of these things. This flows from the free expression of God in sovereignly ordering the things that he does. So there's all sorts of counterfactuals, but that doesn't mean that these counterfactuals come from someplace we haven't been told from where as yet, that they are somehow truths that can determine the feasible worlds. And for example, there is no essence of James White, whether a cologne or otherwise, because if I was living yeah. someplace else at a time, that wouldn't be me. I am who I am because God created me and placed me in this particular place. But uh, I, I have to give Bill kudos because unlike some Molinists, Bill has been willing to go, well, if this is true, then these are some things that follow from this. And one of the things that, that Bill has brought up has been to say, well, maybe maybe there are people who would never accept Christ, that God knows because of middle knowledge, they would never accept Christ. And maybe they're the only people that are lost, is that they would never be saved in any feasible world. And I sit back and I go, okay, is that, are we really suggesting that the apostle Paul believed that, that, that he did all those discussions of sovereignty and the will of man and predestination election, and he missed that? He didn't know about that? See, from a Calvinist perspective, this is what Paul Helm said. He said the same thing I'm saying right now. That changes the expression. Yeah, Ravisseri says, Bill honestly looks in pain. So if you're just looking at body language, William Lane Craig is winning this debate without, without looking at substance. Just looking at how they're behaving, how they're acting, uh, you, you could see mental stress. Um, William Lane Craig is, in in essence, in essence, since we're using that word, I guess, um, in essence, winning this debate. ...of God's sovereignty in his decree from an expression of his personal 
being pleased to do it in this way to something where he's limited to feasible worlds. It's putting together a, a massively complex Lego set, but the, the shape of the Legos was determined by somebody else, not the Eudokia of God. That is the key issue here that must be understood in understanding where we're differing and why it is that Bill can say, we're quoting the same passages, we mean the same thing. No, we're, we, we're quoting the same passages, but one of us is saying, God was pleased in light of these overarching considerations to do the feasible world thing. And I'm saying God was pleased to express his full glory in the creation of mankind in his judgment, his just judgment upon some and his glorious redemption of others. Yeah. So right there, that's uh, that's kind of game game changing a mission from James White that William, Crane, William Lane Craig's model explains his proof text. If your proof text doesn't have just your ex explanation and has alternative reasonable explanations, it's not a proof text. And so William Lane Craig, or not William Lane Craig, uh, James White is admitting that his views are not coming from the Bible. They're imposed on the Bible. There are other models that fit the data. That's a very, very different perspective. Bill. Well, certainly they are different perspectives. Uh, and I think the essence of the difference is that the one is a form of unilateral divine determinism where God determines everything that happens, even evil choices of people. And it seems to me that that makes God evil um, for being the author of evil. The other view... The, those hand flips are not, not good indicators to the audience that's it doesn't look good on james he says this makes god evil and then uh, james white does this little hand flip it's that's not a good perception to be given the audience and i think it's part in, in due to his his frustration his flustering in this debate and so um <laughs> jack asked is it even possible to win a debate if neither party is correct debates aren't really about information they tend not to be about information they tend to be about charisma and presentation and confidence and uh, just, just how you present the argument. Debates don't tend to sway people based on the evidence presented. And uh, you're actually going to see some of that in responses to any debate you go listen to. Each side is going to claim that they won. But uh, one good way to tell who's actually won the debate is which one is promoting that debate after the fact, which one's distributing it, which one wants people to see that debate. And that's a good indication who's actually won the debate. But debates don't, don't tend to be very good information transfers. Discussions tend to be better, but discussions only work when you're kind of on the same page and you want, you want to understand other people and you want to engage with what they actually believe rather than just making complete competing claims. This is a debate of competing claims. Says that God factors into his decree and will what free creatures would do in any situation. And then, as James says, according to his good pleasure, God then decrees which world shall be actual and brings about the sovereign purposes that he has in mind. So it's all according to his good pleasure as James says, but it is not part of the good pleasure of God to move creatures to do evil. But but Bill, wait a minute. The evil that exists 
God knew would exist yes. when he looked at the feasible worlds. Yes. And yet he brought this evil into existence, but not for any purpose in revealing his own character. I, th I think James White is, is calming down. He's, 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 he's getting control of himself. No, he didn't bring the evil into existence, James. He brought into existence the circumstances and the free creatures in them, knowing the, how, how they would choose. And so his permissive will is to allow creatures to do things that his absolute will disagrees with. His absolute will is that in any situation, a creature would always do the right thing, but he knows that often... Yeah, so this is actually kind of key to how these people are acting in this debate. John writes, William Lane Craig is not in pain. He's just feeling sorry for James White. William Lane Craig realizes that he's debating someone completely inferior in philosophy. And I, I think that's an accurate um, perception of William Lane Craig's mental state because he's in teaching mode. His, his tone, his inflections, how, how, he's, how he's talking, it's a teaching mode. And uh, audiences pick up on that thing. He's... He, if you're in teaching mode, then you're in the superior position mentally. Uh, it's, it's the mental perception that you're giving the audience is you're the superior here and you're talking, trying to teach this guy something over here. You're, you are the superior in the conversation. It's a very good look for a debate. And they will do evil things. And so he permits that to happen with a view toward these greater goods, like saving Israel from famine in Egypt bringing the judgment upon apostate Israel, achieving the crucifixion of Jesus through the evil machinations of the rulers of this world. Uh, all of these things transpire with a view. So there's an article out there, uh, Greg writes, that uh, James White gets schooled. So there's an article out there by an atheist, and the article says, never debate William Lane Craig. And uh, the article basically... I think the article's taken off the internet, but it existed, and I read it like, uh, I don't know, five, ten years ago. So never debate William Lane Craig. It's not because he's got all the answers and uh, he's right about everything, but uh, in a debate, he's a master debater. He knows how to present himself, and he knows how to respond, and uh, he, he, knows, he knows how to command the stage. And so in that way, William Lane Craig tends to win his debates based on presentation, uh, even if uh, he doesn't necessarily have the facts on his side, I think that's very much accurate. I think we're seeing a lot of this master presentation in William Lane Craig's body language tonight and just just how he's framing the discussion and how he's responding. And even look at this body language. He's doing the, the look up deal, which is accessing memory and talking in teaching mode. James White's not happy here. View toward God's sovereign purposes for humanity. But James White seems to have gotten control of his nerves. Yeah, he, he does seem to have calmed down a little bit. Um, but what I just want to resist with every fiber of my being. Oh, there's some laughter. God moves creatures to do evil. So I love the Westminster Confession that you were quoting before, and I agree with so much of it. But without middle knowledge, it seems to me that it's it's incoherent. Uh, Pink Noise writes, William Lane Craig has responded to open theism with an open rebuke, especially the Greg Boyd variety. Yeah, I have uh, several podcasts where I respond to William Lane Craig on several issues. And uh, one of them is about grounding and uh, necessary events and, 
and uh, how their system it has inherent contradictions and in how they define necessary events and contingent events. And so, yeah, there's there's a long disagreement with uh, Molinism and open theism. Um, because it's middle knowledge that enables us to explain how everything can pass. I'd love you to explain a bit more, James. I'd love you to explain this then. What, what, why, why do you disagree fundamentally that, that God is effectively the author of evil in this? Well, well, and that's, that's what I keep saying. He keeps saying that, that God is moving people's wills to do things. He is restraining evil. God is not sitting. We aren't a bunch of innocent individuals and God's putting his gun in his back of our hand. Going, Go do evil. So this is this is a oh, so you do see his frustration coming out again. Um, but the problem is William Craig is saying over and over again, you just have a competing model. All your data fits my model as well. And you're just presenting us an alternative model. And so just pre uh, the Calvinist thing to do is always to confuse making a c claim with making an argument. A claim is not an argument. A claim has to be supported with data. Why is it that your model is true and William Lane Craig's model is false? There, there's got to be some sort of case for that. Things that no, nowhere has that has that been been even hinted at. And it's interesting that that you can talk about permissive wills and th and yet when the reform person talks about God's sovereign decree and then his his uh, his prescriptive will somehow that's just that that's just dismissed out of hand uh, this is this is where i'm really having having a problem because when god god directly says i do what i please in heaven and on earth and it sounds to me what you're what you're saying is only within a certain realm because he is delimited by these subjunctive counterfact yeah i do what i want in my house and so that doesn't mean i like control everything and like sometimes flies get in my house in the summer and then i have to chase them down with fly swatters but i still do whatever i want in my house james white says we read a verse it instantly means calvinism and it can't mean anything else and william lane craig's been laughing at him through the debate and it's this is what's been getting to getting to james white getting underneath his skin actuals of creaturely freedom that you haven't explained the origin of and basically said we don't need to know the origin of that there is no origin that's truth maker theory it, it, it's you who is presupposing a yes. philosophical presupposition in demanding grounds for these things but you're the one saying that god cannot save certain people because of it and when i say it you say you can't ask where it comes from because that's some truth maker thing so William Lane Craig's uh, reaction there, it, it almost seemed like fake, fake shock. Like, that's not what I said. And uh, is very apparent and maybe overacted. But I, I think it was a good move to indicate that James White's making claims that are unsupportive and misrepresenting. I think it's just simply something that is absolutely necessary if we're going to take middle knowledge seriously. Right? I mean, you, you do admit that you've said that there are certain people that in no feasible world can they be saved, right? That was a hypothesis to deal with the problem of the exclusivity of salvation through Christ. But James, if we start down that road, we're going to go into a black hole and, and never finish. The, the, the <laughs> thing about Molinism is That's that it is extremely fruitful theologically. 
And I have applied it to the exclusivity of salvation through Christ, to the problem of perseverance of the saints, uh, and to, to the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, it is an extremely fecund source of theological insight for the one who, who uses it. But we can't talk about those things today. The problem of evil is the one that's on the table today. And it seems to me that a view that allows for human freedom to do evil is much more plausible than a view that says God universally and unilaterally determines creatures to do evil. Well, Bill, that, that's the difference. Uh, and and over the over the decades when I've interacted with your materials and have provided criticism, it's the same criticism all along. You just said it's more plausible. Yes. And and I believe that the standard for a Christian should not be plausibility. So Pink writes, uh, that's unfortunate. William Lane Craig threw his own teaching away so flippantly. So I think what James White was trying to do there was move to a different subject where he might gain more ground um, rhetorically uh, through, through rhetoric with the audience where, oh, you believe this other thing over here? Whereas the debate's actually again about the problem of evil and William Lane Craig's redirecting to the debate topic. So what James White should have done here, if he really wanted to talk about this, is tie his previous objection or path to the problem of evil to diffuse William Lane Craig not wanting to talk about it and say this is integral to the problem of evil because this, this, and this. And then uh, William Lane Craig might be forced into talking about this new subject. But it is it is interesting. Um, you don't want to necessarily sidetrack debates. And uh, you, you've seen Calvinists do this uh, from time to time. I think one, the one with uh, Will Duffy talking about uh, the problem of Calvinism is is the God of Calvinism evil, and uh, William Lane or not William Lane Craig, but uh, Matt Slick kept wanting to Will Will Duffy to exegete verses and say, "Here's God doing something evil, therefore it must be good" or something like that, where that wasn't the topic of the debate, and Will Duffy wasted a lot of time engaging with this this real side issue. See. The standard for a Christian should be consistency with the essence of divine revelation. But there are multiple views which are consistent with Scripture. And, well, and what, what yeah. that means is it has to be derived from not coming from outside and creating a, a, a system over. And that's what Molina did because, Bill, Molina was a Jesuit. He rejected Sola Scriptura. He was not operating upon the same foundations. And to call him a theological giant when he's not functioning upon the ground. So Pink writes, uh, White's question was based in the origin of evil, completely on topic there. So the question was, could God have saved everyone? So that actually is a really interesting question. And I would like to know what William Lane Craig how he would answer that question if pressed. But since he didn't tie it to the problem of evil, um, William Lane Craig doesn't seem compelled to answer it because it's kind of off topic. So uh, William, Lane, not William Lane Craig, but James White should have tied it back to the problem of evil. That makes for theological giants is to me one of the biggest, biggest revelations of what we have here. Well, there's nothing about middle knowledge that denies sola scriptura. I believe in scripture alone as my authority, not church tradition. 
the point that I made earlier, James, comes back again. Reformed theology is permeated by models and uh, theories of God that are not based on Scripture, though they are consistent with Scripture. I, and I, I, I have to disagree with like you. the attributes of God, the necessity, timelessness, spacelessness, simplicity of God. These are all constructions theologically that are not based on Scripture, but the Reformed theologian would say they're consistent with Scripture. I, I, I disagree by when you say they are not based upon Scripture. I do not know <laughs> how you can walk through the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 through 48 and not come up with the necessity of almost every single one of the attributes you just mentioned. In because God counts, God decides new things, God reasons with people, God pleads with people, he, he has people rejecting him, and he does stuff in vain to try to win their allegiance. Um, he, he, he puts them as judge over him, so he's not even self-sufficient. It shows him time-bound, talking to them, reasoning with them, and uh, going back and forth with them. So the whole uh, trial of the false gods is is a testament against Calvinism. Again, Calvinist theology is compartmentalized. They only want to talk about one thing when they look at any specific proof text, and they don't want to consider whether that proof text, how that proof text affects other areas of their theology. God is counting in, in Isaiah 40. God counts the waters. Counting is discursive. Counting is thinking. But nope, uh, let's just take it about God's creative element and God can do anything because it's a creative act. Well, we won't pay attention to God counting things. Counting is discursive. Counting is learning. God counts. In light of God's demanding that the false gods do things they cannot do. If you want, if you want true, rich sources of theology, it's not the Jesuit from the end of the 16th century. It would be Isaiah 40 through 48 or the sections in Jeremiah where he's dealing with the, the Babylonian gods and, and, and places like that. I do believe, Bill, honestly, I'm one of those guys over here that really, really believes that what I believe about the attributes of God does come forth from the. So this is an interesting shift. So I don't know if our, our uh, debate moderator here is controlling all the cameras and all the transitions and purposely did this uh, three picture to try to highlight William Lane Craig kind of shaking his head with this like look of like, what the heck is going like shaking his head. I don't know if this was a purposeful framing by the moderator, but it does illustrate that uh, it does undermine, undermine James White to see William Lane Craig doing that as he's talking with this, like this expression, like, ah, the text of scripture not it's not something that's that's out here someplace so at least you can understand why i find it so deeply troubling pink noise writes god speaks to us in time god exists eternally both are not incompatible if god changes then he's not simple if god has befores and afters if he has uh propositions that apply to him if he has relations with outside objects he's not simple he's not incomparable he's not immutable he's not ineffable um, it just violates everything that uh, classical theism teaches about God. So that's why Augustine in his Confessions, chapter 11, says that when God says, this is my son, comes down in the dove, that can't be God speaking, is what Augustine writes. That has to be a programmed creature in time to utter those words in time, because God can't be related to time. He can't have befores and afters. Befores and afters are changes. Violates immutability. 
So yeah, God counts. Yeah, Pink says God counts. Yeah, he, he counts throughout the Bible. He counts our head, our, our hairs on our head. He counts the sparrows. He counts the waters. That there would be a claim being made that when I press upon that claim and say, you're saying God cannot do certain things in light of this, where does that come from? It doesn't come from anywhere. It just is, and it's a great theological insight. Um, I, that's why that's why even I think eventually Roman Catholics ended up rejecting uh, Molina's formulations is because it's it's fatally flawed. A quick response, Bill, and then we'll we'll have some final thoughts from you. Both. Well, I have here Richard Muller's massive four volume history of post-reformational reformed dogmatics. Uh, and anyone who thinks that Reformed dogmatics is simply read out of Scripture uh, doesn't know the history of Reformed theology. The, these volumes are permeated with theological constructs, philosophical models, philosophical principles that shape and guide Reformed dogmatics. And I've given examples of these already. God's necessity. There's nothing in Scripture that says that God exists in every possible world, rather than just in this world. God's timelessness. There's nothing in Scripture that proves that God transcends time rather than endures throughout all time. God, uh, James White has calmed down, but he's still not happy. God's spacelessness. Again, there's nothing in Scripture that says that God transcends space rather than exists every point in space, or the simplicity of God. Certainly God doesn't have physical parts, but you can't prove scripturally that God's essence is existence, that God doesn't have distinct properties. And yet all of these are... Pink Noise writes that uh, because Pink Noise is a Calvinist, probably a play on the author, Calvinist Pink, that would display within time. This is where we learn that God, God's dwelling place is in eternity, well, high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. The problem is that phrase also is applied to man in, in the Bible. And so man's not timeless. It doesn't mean what you claim. Calvinists do this thing where they read a verse and they say, oh, this means my Calvinism, my Calvinism. And they don't apply the same phrase consistently every time it's used throughout the scripture, especially when the phrases are applied to men. They just assume that these phrases mean their Calvinism and they want to disclude any other reading of those phrases. This is verse theology. It's, it's verse thinking. It's, it's not good theology affirmed by Reformed theologians who took over from the medieval scholastics, the Roman Catholic doctrine of God lock, stock, and barrel, uh, including those attributes that I just mentioned. Uh, no one said that they are simply read out of scripture as if you just simply have the chapter on simplicity or the chapter on anything else. The point is that when you derive your theology from the consistent exegesis of Scripture as a whole, and by the way, sola scriptura is not just it's your ultimate authority. So I'm going to go ahead and read this verse to illustrate Psalms 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints, for they are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked are cut off. And so this is the inhabits eternity. It's translated different, of course, when it's applied to men than when it's applied to God. Shocker that uh, translators are biased and and uh, translate things in different ways, but that's what it is. It's it's a normal phrase and it's applied to men. So taking it in some sort of weird Calvinist metaphysical way, based on this short little clip, it's not warranted. 
it, you don't get it from the Bible. You have to read the theology into the verse rather than get the theology from the verse. It's the sole infallible rule of faith. But when you use scripture as the whole of the source from which you're deriving these things, can you go and talk about these? Can you do what Francis Turretin did and, and make application and, and, and interact with the world? Of course. But that doesn't change what the source of your theology is. And my point here is that we have seen that the central claim of middle knowledge is not grounded, it is not sourced, and yet it is used to delimit what God's decree can do. That is why I believe it must be rejected and cannot therefore be a good answer for the for the problem of evil, unless we're just looking for, for answers that are not... All right, we're, we're back up. Uh, we've got some glitches tonight. But uh, this this part's important where James White says, your view's not biblical. And William Lane Craig? Are not fundamentally biblical in their nature because that's not how Paul it would have answered the It is biblical in the sense that it's consistent with Scripture. And again, there's nothing in Scripture that teaches unilateral divine determinism either. These are competing models of God, and we're expected to say which one best handles the data of Scripture without bruising the data. And I, I think that Calvinism bruises the data in that it makes God the author of evil. We, we will have to draw it to a close there. I, I feel like you both have very well. So I, I think actually this was a very worthwhile endeavor going over this debate. Um, so it, it illustrated a lot of things about Calvinism, about Calvinists, uh, about Molinists and Molinism. Uh, but it really illustrates to us how to debate certain personalities, such as James White. Uh, he's he's he has a high opinion of, of of himself. He he loves attention. He loves to feel like he's right. He loves sycophants praising him, and so uh, it all went downhill for him when L William Lane Craig did the laugh at him—a dismissive, long, prolonged laugh. James White couldn't handle it, and he went into panic mode. You saw it in his face. You saw it in his reaction. He doesn't want to deal with someone who doesn't give him the respect that he thinks he deserves, who looks down on him, who goes into teaching mode towards him. He, he doesn't He doesn't want to engage in that type of debate. So it is. he wasn't expecting this, and I suspect he went into full damage control, and that's why he put out his video preceding or coming before this, after the debate, but before this debate was released, I think that's what happened in that panic mode. But just watch that. Watch how people present themselves. Watch how they're they're thinking. Watch for their weaknesses, uh, who they are, how they think, how they perceive themselves, how others perceive them. And you could you could see the the back and forth in these debates. Watch for the micro expressions too. Just watch them closely, and you could see some internal wheels turning. William Lane Craig's doing the thoughtful looking up, uh, reaching back in your mind. And uh, James White is doing a kind, of, kind of this controlled shaking in his hands. 
frustration, uh, lashing out, and you see him lashing out. So fantastic debate, uh, great debate. I don't agree with either party. I think Molinism has serious problems, but James White didn't quite illustrate all the problems. Number one is um, it makes everything necessary. Number two, makes everything fatalistic. Uh, and on the same line, it destroys any concept of free will. So those are the main three philosophical problems with Molinism. And uh, just the grounding objection was really hit on. Um, but uh, in the biblical data, he could have, uh, how do you argue Calvinism? How do you argue any proof text is a Calvinist proof text that doesn't also have explanatory power in the Molinist system? You can't find proof text for that, that uh, Molinists can't just shake their head yes and say, hey, I agree with that verse too. They just don't exist. And so I think it was a, a doomed endeavor from the start. I don't think James White knew what he was going to be dealing with here. I, I, didn't, I don't think he expected this. But it's pretty late here. Uh, we'll probably wrap up and, uh, I don't know, probably try to fix my internet before next time. This is a bad internet tonight. So a lot, of, a lot of pauses. I don't know how to pull those pauses out of a YouTube video after a live stream ends. Maybe, maybe there's a way. We'll figure it out. I don't know. Well, thanks for coming and uh, commenting. Yeah, we can start threads on the God is Open Facebook page if you want. Talk about these things. Anyways, I'll talk to everyone later. Thanks for coming.